Well, hey, Hope City, it's great to be with you today. We are kicking off this new series, John the Baptist, looking at his life and his ministry, and our goal is to be inspired by his example. He's a radical dude and does amazing things for the kingdom of God, and we want to be people who step out of our comfort zone and represent Jesus in our own world and in our own context and in our own way. So we're going to be looking at his life. John is a prophet. John is a, a, a participant, and John is a pariah and a prisoner. And over these next three weeks, I, I hope it's really helpful for us to just get out of that bubble, get out of our comfort zone, and, and represent Christ. Now, as we start today, I want to take us in the Wayback Machine. I want you to think about a time when you actually went to the movies to see movie trailers. Before YouTube and apps on your phone, think about the time when you used to be excited to get to the movies early to go see what? The previews. God, I can't miss the previews. Got to see the previews, right? Because the previews get you all excited about what's coming out. In fact, it's a true story. In 1998, way back machine, back in 1998, it is said that ticket sales for a little-known Brad Pitt movie called Meet Joe Black went through the roof because fanboys flooded the theaters to see a preview that was premiering before Meet Joe Black. So tons of people went to go see Meet Joe Black. Why? Not because of the movie, but they went to see the preview. Any guesses on what the movie was? Hmm? Give you three seconds. Three, two, one. It was Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. People were so jacked up, excited to see this, and all they wanted to see was two minutes. They just wanted to see the two-minute trailer because by seeing that, they were going to get so excited about what was coming out with that movie. There had been years of anticipation and preparation, and so just to see the trailer, they literally would buy a movie ticket, sit in there, and then it is reported that two-thirds of the theater would literally just get up and leave. They wouldn't even stick around for the movie that they paid for. They just wanted to see the two-minute trailer. It gives them a taste of what's coming. It gives them an excitement and an anticipation. And as we look at John the Baptist, it's understanding that he is the coming soon trailer for what Jesus is about to come and usher in, right? Jesus is the, the movie that we all want to see, but John shows up to prepare everyone. Hey, guess what? This guy's coming. He's going to bring this message. He's going to do some incredible things. You want to get ready for that. He's building anticipation. He's building and giving us a glimpse into what Jesus came to usher in. John is a prophet. And what do we mean by prophet? He is a messenger. He is a spokesman, a representative. He is one that is pointing to Jesus. His whole ministry was about pointing people to Christ. As a prophet, that word in the Hebrew language is rooted as the same word for to boil over or to bubble over, right? And it's some imagery there. Uh, maybe you picture a fountain that's just overflowing with water. Or maybe you've ever done this. Hopefully not, because it may verge on vandalism. Or maybe you've seen it, right? Where somebody put dish soap into a fountain, and then what happens? That dish soap mixes in with the fountain, and boom, it bubbles over, and it goes over the sides of the fountain and the sidewalk, and sometimes even into the streets. And you see some radical pictures of, of these fountains overflowing, Right? And what that, what that is, is the soap is mixed up and made this thing uncontainable with bubbles. Well, John is a prophet, and with that root word of prophet meaning to bubble over, it means that God has poured into his heart a message, a message that is uncontainable, a message that bubbles out of him, and he can't contain it. He must share it, must speak it, must get it out to people so that they can hear it. And so we're going to take today looking at that message and seeing what it did to prepare for Christ's arrival. Now, let's look at John's message. John shows up on the scene, and his story is told in all the Gospels as you read the beginning of 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you read about John's uh, story and, and his ministry and his teaching. But John shows up in the, in the picture 400 years since the last prophet has spoken. It's been 400 years since Malachi, the, the Old Testament prophet, had a message from God for the people of Israel. 400 years of silence, no messengers, no spokesmen, no prophets, no nothing. God has just been quiet, but then John shows up. And he brings this message. This message that we're going to read in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 2 and 5 through 6. Matthew 3, 1 through 2 says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Verse 5, People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John's got this message for people. He's out in the wilderness preaching this message. I'm going to focus on a couple of key components here. One is this component of the kingdom of heaven is near. This message that he's saying is fulfillment of generational promises all the way handed down from generation to generation that the Messiah, the chosen one, would come and he would bring rescue and restoration for people. This was something that they were excited about. Now, they envisioned it being David or Solomon or some sort of earthly king that would conquer and bring dominion over the empire. God had a different plan. But John shows up to say, the kingdom of heaven that you've been waiting for, it's coming. So you better get ready. Let's, and what does that bring? It brings urgency. It brings preparedness. It's like when you find out, oh, crud, we got company coming over, right? Does your spouse ever tell you, like, hey, honey, guess what's coming tomorrow? What? Uh, family or friends or we're going to have people over. Oh, okay. And what do you do once you have that anticipation of people are coming over to your house? What do you tend to do? You tend to clean anything and everything. All the clutter that you used to be comfortable with or the mess or the things that you haven't cleaned in a while, right? <laughs> we all have those spots in our house. Well, when people are coming over, we clean those things. We wipe, we dust, we mop, we clean, and we get it all prepared. We're anticipating the arrival of somebody, so we get ready for it. And John is saying, get ready for the arrival of God's kingdom. And what does he tell them to do? To repent. He says to repent. And that word repentance is another key component of his message. It was a message that constantly came out in what he was sharing. Repent, repent, repent. And what is repentance? What is it? It's a Christian word. We don't hear a lot outside of Christian circles and Christian walls and context. The word repentance simply means a turn, a change of mind, a change of attitude and will, a, a U-turn, if you will, just kind of a, a, a change in trajectory. That's what repentance really is, right? We confess and admit our sin, but repentance is the act of changing, transforming. Uh, it's that change that has happened. And I was reading about repentance, and I, I came across something an author kind of broke out about repentance. I think it was really helpful because this is a key part of his message, and it's understanding what is John trying to say? What is he trying to get at, right? And, and it, he talked about the importance in this, in this book I was reading, talked about the importance of what repentance does. What is the goal of repentance? It's relationship. The goal of repenting is not to just feel better about ourselves, Right? and to wipe away our shame and our guilt. The point is to restore relationship. At its basic form, repentance is about restoring a broken relationship between us and God. Relationship that had been fractured by sin can be restored through repentance. But repentance is also about reorientation. It's about the change that takes place. This is, the, uh, this is what happens when we repent. When we repent, what takes place? Not just a warm, fuzzy feeling, 
but an actual transformation, a change, because it is a change in trajectory. I'm living this way, and then I repent. I'm going this way, right? It is a change in this. It's a reorientation. This is what is taking place when we repent. New choices, new life, new perspectives, new, 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 new thoughts, new speech, new everything. God transforms, and that's what takes place. But in this book I was reading about John the Baptist, it kind of challenged this idea of, well, what leads us to repentance? And there's three factors that he talks about, remorse, revelation, and realization. Remorse, revelation, and realization. These are the factors that lead us to that moment of repentance, that moment of confession, that moment of desiring change and making a change. Let's talk about remorse for a moment. That is that feeling of regret or sorrow that we might feel for our choices, right? We feel bad when we sin, uh, the guilt and the shame that's associated with it. We see it between Zacchaeus and Jesus. Zacchaeus comes to Jesus and says, I've, I've sinned, I'm wrong, forgive me. I've been greedy and materialistic, I've hurt people, right? He's filled with remorse. And so Zacchaeus repents. There's times where you and I feel remorse for our actions and we repent to God. Another way or another factor is revelation. These ideas of dreams or visions or moments where God speaks and gets our attention and it leads to change. We see it with the Apostle Peter when he's showing a, a sense of marginalization, a sense of superiority to the Gentile people. God shows up in a dream and says, these are my people. Let nothing stand in the way. It's not just the Jews that I died for. It's the Gentiles, right? Peter experiences that through a revelation, through a dream. Peter, or excuse me, Paul, on a road to Damascus, has a revelatory moment, a moment of revelation that leads to repentance when he himself is walking along and he's blinded. And Jesus shows up and asks him, what are you doing? Stop doing this. Stop living in sin, right? He has this moment of encountering Jesus. And it's this revelation that leads Paul to a moment of repentance. But lastly, there's realization. This idea that we begin to see things differently, think about things differently, feel things differently. It's this idea of this light bulb going off. And, and, and this is a key factor in people coming to a moment of repentance. We see it with Zacchaeus, or not Zacchaeus, I said Zacchaeus earlier. Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a religious leader at the time, and, and in John chapter 3, he has a moment with Jesus in the middle of the night, asking him a bunch of questions. He has no remorse, right? He's not having this huge revelatory revelation moment or vision or dream, but he's having a moment of realization when he's asking questions about being reborn, about entering the kingdom of God, about having his sins forgiven, and Jesus is talking with him and having conversation, and, and, and Nicodemus has a moment of realization. Each of these is powerful. Each of these is important. Each of these is relevant and resonates with us. Right, And we, we desire that, that type of moment with Jesus, whether it's through remorse, revelation, or realization. But what is John getting at? I think that's important because repentance is a key part of his message. And it's not just about bringing your sadness to God. This is not a message driven by emotion and sadness and sorrow. It's not a message with dreams and visions. This is a moment of realization for people. He's saying, wake up. 
You've been complacent. You've been quiet. God's been quiet for 400 years. You've kind of gone through the motions of things for generation after generation. He's trying to change their paradigm, change their thinking, change their outlook through a moment of realization. Will you realize your need to repent? Your realization that, wow, I have sin in my life, and I've got to confess that. I've got to make a change in my life. John's getting their attention through realization. And he's seeing people repent, and he's bringing this message of repentance to prepare them for what's coming. And then there's this key component after that of baptism. He focuses on the kingdom of heaven being near. He focuses on repentance, right? But then he challenges people to get baptized. And the word baptism, it means this. It means to be immersed, to be submerged, to be dipped, dunked, plunging in over our head or overwhelmed. To be immersed is literally what baptism is all about. Kind of conjures this imagery with that language of fabric being immersed in coloring dye and it takes on the color of the dye. Or we might think of it as like an Easter egg, right? You take a plain white egg and you dip it and it immersed in the dye, what does it do? Right, it comes out different. Well, when John is baptizing people, he's, he's giving them an action step. He's saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is near, right? Ask for forgiveness, Repent of your sin, turn from your sin, and turn to God. It's this very simple message, but he's giving them a very simple action step after that. If you're going to believe that in your heart, you're going to experience that in your heart, then I want you to experience that in your body. Come into the river with me, and I'm going to plunge you in. I'm going to immerse you in water and bring you out. And you're going to see this symbolism in baptism where they are you know, buried in sin and raised to new life. They are immersed in water, Right and raised to this new life and new thinking, immersed in water, but they're immersed in faith. They're immersed in this new thinking. They're immersed in God's love. Baptism was this very visual and action-oriented type of step in his ministry. It got people off the sidelines. It got people from just thinking about repentance. It got people from, from, from just feeling and, and experiencing that inside, but rather to celebrate it, to proclaim it represent what has been happening inside. John's saying, okay, now come into the river. Let's do this. And people are seeing this, and word is spreading, and popularity is growing, and fame. And people are whispering about this John the Baptist guy, and his message is getting out. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Let's get you baptized. But what's the mission behind his message? Why is he doing this? What is John getting at? You see, as the crowds are growing and popularity and fame is growing about John, the religious leaders get a little skeptical. They get a little insecure about all these people going out into the wilderness and hanging out with this guy and dunking him in the river. And what's this guy up to? What authority does he have? And so that's what they do. They just go and start asking him a bunch of questions. Hey, John, uh, who do you think you are? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one we've been waiting for? Because if you are, we're going to be ready for this, right? Or they're saying, hey, are you Elijah? Elijah was taken up into heaven, and we read about that in the Old Testament. Have you come back to earth to teach us something? No? Okay, you're not Elijah. Well, are you the prophet, the prophet that Moses told us would come? Who are you? And what I love about John is he has no problem telling him, no, that, I'm none of those things. But in fact, this is who I am. John chapter 1, verse 23, this is what John says. John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way of the Lord. I am the voice of one calling in the desert. 
makes straight the way of the Lord. You see, John recognizes he's not the man. He's not the one that everybody is supposed to have their attention fixated on. He is a voice in the wilderness, literally. He is a voice in this literal wilderness, but also in this spiritual wilderness. 400 years people have been waiting for God to show up, for a message from God. There's a spiritual wilderness that's taken place, right? And John is this voice to get their attention and do what? Make straight the path. He's doing the prep work for Jesus. Think about that. He's doing all the prep work to prepare for what Jesus is about to do. That's what he's saying when he quotes Isaiah. How many of you like doing prep work for projects, right? You're going to paint your new living room wall or whatever, a new color or something like that. Uh, and you got to do the you got to do the prep work. How many of you love prep work, right? Putting the putting the tape, the painter's tape, patching up the drywall holes, putting out the drop cloths, the priming, all of this stuff. Nobody likes the grunt work. They like to get the roller out and say, hey, honey, look, bright orange or bright yellow or pink or blue or gray or whatever color it is. Look at this new color. It's so beautiful. Everybody wants to do the, the beautiful work, the, the transformative work. Oh, man, look at this new color on the wall. You can clearly see it. Laying tape. That's, uh, that's not exciting. But see, that's what John came to do. His message of repentance, his ministry of baptism, it's preparing people for the message and ministry of Jesus. It's preparing their hearts, it's preparing their ears, preparing them to be ready that the kingdom of heaven is near. He's laying the painter's tape, he's spackling the holes, he's getting people's ready, getting people's hearts ready. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, he says this about his ministry. He says, I baptize with water for repentance. But after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. This is an important phrase right here. This is a, a scripture uh, that we don't want to skip over when he's describing the mission of, of his message. Why is he sharing what he's sharing? Because he understands that someone's coming after him that is so much greater, so much grander, so much bigger. It's an important statement that's mentioned actually seven times throughout the New Testament, not just in the Gospels, it's also in the New Testament letters. There's some slight variations in scholars' question, why, is, why does he use different phrases? And, and, and they land on this conclusion. He was saying it so often. And when you say something a lot, you tend to use different words sometimes, especially when you're a public speaker. But the gist of it is there. I immerse in water, but someone else is coming who will immerse you in the Holy Spirit. I immerse you in the river to represent the washing away of your sin. Someone's coming, the Messiah's coming, who will immerse you in the Spirit of God, the power of God. And that is important. That is coming, and we need to be prepared. You see him elevate Jesus, right? And Jesus is above him in the way that he talks about Jesus. He doesn't see himself as equal and on par with the Messiah. He doesn't see himself as it's all about me and my spotlight and my followers and my Instagram and all of this. What does he say, right? You see him talk about Jesus. This guy's coming. I'm not even worthy to carry his sandals. I'm not even worthy to carry it. I'm not worthy to be a shoe boy, right? The guy's coming and he's greater than me. He doesn't compare to me. I don't compare to him. But we've got to get ready for this. And what I admire about John is the inner strength that it takes for that. The popularity has increased. The crowds are following him. People are, but think about the self-awareness it takes to say, yeah, but it's not about me. 
the emotional health it takes to resist the temptation that the crowds and the leaders wanted to maybe anoint and appoint him. You're the one we've been waiting for. We've been waiting 400 years to hear something amazing like this. Man, John, and they just want to hoist him on, his sh- on their shoulders and carry him out like Rudy, right? But John has the awareness and the strength and the health to say, no, no. From their vantage point, he was larger than life, but from his vantage point, he realized there's somebody greater coming. We don't just need repentance and water baptism. We need a Savior. We need the Spirit of God. You see this again carried on later in his ministry. In John chapter 3, verse 30, is this phrase that is very famous in describing John and his, his mission and his message. He says, he, he being Jesus, he must become greater, and I, John, must become less. He must become greater, and I must become less. Now that sounds great, right? You read that phrase, it sounds, oh man, that's catchy, that's tweetable, that's a bumper sticker right there. He must become greater, I must become less. He must increase, I must decrease. But remember when John says this. If you go and read this passage in its context, when he says this is not when the crowds are following him. It's actually when the crowds are dwindling, when more people are now going and watching Jesus and going seeing Jesus' disciples baptized in the river. They're more caught up in that popularity. People have left. Folks are hanging out with Jesus more than they're hanging out with John, and John's disciples come to him, and they're worried. Hey, everybody's switching churches, man. They're going to the hip, new, trendy Jesus church over here. What are we going to do about it? And John says that statement. He must become greater, and I must become less. Because John's not worried. He's not insecure He's confident in his role. His role is to prepare the way for Jesus, to get people ready for Jesus' arrival, to get people ready for the ministry and the teaching of Jesus. And this is stated also so vividly and beautifully in the Gospel of John, right? These are two different Johns, by the way. The disciple John, who was a follower of Jesus, wrote the Gospel of John, and he writes about John the Baptist. In John chapter 1, verse 7 through 8, This is how he describes John the Baptist. He says, he, he being John, John came as a witness to testify concerning the light so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light, he being John. John himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. You see, the disciple John is writing in his gospel saying that there is a light in the world and that light was not John the Baptist. John the Baptist knew, I'm not the light of the world. I'm only a witness to the light. Who's the light of the world? Jesus. John is is a witness to that light, pointing to, to, to people and saying, hey, this is what I've seen. This is what I've experienced. This is what I've heard from God. This is what I know from God as a fact. This is the guy to follow. Everything is pointing to Jesus. He's a witness to the light. I would illustrate that uh, with a story. My, my family and I got a zoo pass this year. We like to go to the zoo and see the animals. Even in COVID, we can wear masks and walk around outside and go see rhinos and hippos and lions and giraffes and everything. And sometimes when we go, it's like, where's Waldo trying to find the animals hiding in the bushes, right? They're cold. And they don't want to come out either. And so we'll stand there, and we're standing at the, at the, at the bar of, of the cage or whatever in the environment, and we're looking into the habitat. 
and we're searching and searching and searching, and then one of us will find it. And what do we do? Hey, I see it. It's right over there. And we point. We point with our finger or we begin to describe, okay, see that tree over there and it looks like this and see that bush? Okay, follow that and then go to the left and boom, there's the giraffe or there's the zebra or there's the lion. Because you want to see the animal. That's the whole reason you go to the zoo. It's really depressing when they don't come out and want to show up, right? So when we go, we help each other out. We are being a witness to the animals that we've seen. And then what happens, right? The kids especially, when they see it, oh, I see it. And they get so excited, so jacked up, and whoo, I see it, there it is, there's the zebra, oh, there's the warthog, oh, there's the lion. We're a witness to the zoo animals that we've seen. Well, John the Baptist is a witness to the light of Jesus, the light of this world that was sent by the Father. And he's pointing, John is pointing to Jesus and saying, saying, there's the guy, that's the one you want to follow. I want you to see him for yourself. I want you to experience that love and that ministry for yourself. You see, John's role as a prophet was to point people to Jesus. And I would challenge us with this question. How are we pointing people to Jesus? Not pointing people to our religion. Not pointing people to a program. It's not about, oh, come to this life group or come to this church service. I don't come to Rooted or this Bible study. We're not pointing people towards personalities or friends of ours or a pastor. Not even ourselves. Sometimes we have this propensity to, to point people towards ourselves. Look at how I've cleaned my life up. Look at how my life is different. But John's example tells us we are not the hero of our story. Jesus is the hero of our story. Jesus is the one that shows up and loved us first. Jesus is the one that died for us on the cross. Jesus is the one that forgives us of our sin. He's the one that conquered the power of sin and death. Jesus is the one that changes us and changes our lives. He's the one that gives us hope and gives us eternity. Jesus is the hero of our story. We should not be pointing and saying, hey, look at me, look at what I've done, or hey, look at my pastor, look at what he can say and do. Look at our church, and we're perfect, blah, blah, blah. We point people to the wrong thing sometimes. John's example reminds us, point people to Jesus. How are we pointing people to Jesus? John used a radical approach. He shook people's paradigms. He changed their thinking. He prepared them for what was coming. He got their attention, and it provoked them to action. They experienced it in their heart and in their mind, this idea of repentance, and they stepped out in faith and, and got baptized. How are we going to do that in our world today? How are we going to do that in our culture and in our community? How are we going to stir things up? And that might, might scare some of us, might make, make us a little anxious or nervous or unsettled, right? These are things and times when we might hesitate. Oh, crud, how, what am I going to say and what am I going to do and how am I going to provoke that response? And we get all worried about that, right? And we have this fear of rejection or fear of failure, fear of stumbling over our words and looking foolish, fear of awkwardness in conversations. But again, as we look at John, what was a key theme? It's not about John. It's about Jesus. It's not about what I get out of it. It's not about what I lose. It's not about the awkwardness that I feel. It's not about if people don't like me anymore. When John says, 
Jesus must increase and I must decrease, it reminds us to go and point people to Jesus and be fearless. And I think that's what it does. It sets us free of any fear or insecurity or hesitation to want to be bold and point people and say, this is the guy that's going to change your life. He's changed my life, yes, and I want that for you. Here's who Jesus is. This is what Jesus is all about. You see, I think it sets us free. It challenges us, gives us boldness to be people who are following Christ and anyone we come in contact with, we recognize it's an opportunity to point them to Jesus. How are we pointing people to Jesus? Let's pray. Jesus, I pray right now that we would be people who we experience the message that John declared, one of urgency, that we would no longer be waiting and hesitating, one of, uh, of repentance. God, if there's sin in our life, I pray right now that we turn. We, we confess those things to you right now. Jesus, we need you to forgive us. We need a fresh start, a new beginning. Uh, forgive us. Be the king of our life. And bring change. Reorientate our lives right now, God. I pray for those of us that need to take that next bold step and, and, and be baptized, God. Whatever fear or insecurity or uh, questions are holding us back, God, I just pray for courage to take that next step and to step out and be baptized during this season. And lastly, I pray also for the boldness to go and point people to you. Each and every one of us can point people to you, Jesus, with our words, with our actions, with our lives. May it all point to you. In your name we pray. Amen. If you'd like more information regarding Hub City Church, find us at thehubcitychurch.com. Thanks for listening.